Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal Worship Service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. We've been called to worship. Now we see our call to confession today comes from Proverbs 19, verse 9. A false witness will not go unpunished, and he who breathes out lies will perish. Here's a repetition of what was given in the Tenth Commandment, and again in earlier places in Proverbs. We have a need to be warned again and again of the danger of lying and of false witness bearing since nothing is of more fatal consequences. The one who lies will be destroyed, he will perish. These lies he causes against others will be his own ruin. In, his, in God's economy, he will carry out this chastisement. The effect of one's lies are far-reaching. We see this around us. Since the lie is usually about someone else, there are consequences that are borne by others as well when the lie is told. You need to look no further than the current political landscape and the presidential primary races to see the consequences of a witness, whether the accusation of that witness is true or false. But if we assume for the moment, for the sake of argument, that the accusations are false, we can see that the candidate that's been accused is toast just because he's been accused of a fact, of a, of a particular act. Words truly matter, and words, your words matter as well. False witnesses destroy the foundation of justice. Those who tell lies will be punished, but a false witness does not destroy God's plans for the world. Think of the false accusations made against Christ himself. To read from Matthew 26. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, who came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. The lies forged against God did not foil his plan of salvation for the world. His might overcomes all sorts of evil, and by his design he is honored and glorified, even when all sorts of evil and false charges are brought against him. This reminds us of our own need to confess our sins. So I invite you to kneel where you are. Verses 2 and 3, we have a warning. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will, be, will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he's a debtor to keep the whole law. This is something that Paul's just finished explaining is impossible. He said, he said if you get circumcised... Christ's salvation is no longer for you. If you become circumcised, you're a debtor to keep the whole law. And the whole point of Paul's argument in Galatians 3, he started it out with, with uh, that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. Galatians 3 verse 11. No one is justified by the law in the sight of, of God. That no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident, for the just shall live by faith. So the works of the law, becoming a debtor to keep the whole law, is an impossible way of salvation. In verse 4 we read, You have become estranged from Christ, you who attempt to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. There's an irony here, an irony that Judaism, circumcision, is the legalism that Paul is fighting against in the, in the Galatian church. Instead of casting off uncleanliness, symbolically, which is what circumcision symbolized, it was a cutting off of the foreskin, it was, it was a shedding of blood, a separation of, of us from uncleanliness. Instead of that, you would be cutting off the justification of grace that Christ bestows freely so you will be cut off from Christ, is what Paul's saying here. That's what it means if you're estranged from Christ. And then he says, 
you have fallen from grace. First of all, there's a, a, a mental picture there. Grace is elevated above law. If you, if, you, if you lose grace, it's a downward path. You fall from grace. Grace is something that lifts you up. And if you lose that grace, you then fall away from it. It's elevated over law. Grace is elevated over law as freedom is elevated over slavery. As peace is elevated over anxiety. That's what you give up when you give up Christ. When you give up grace. So what does it mean to, be, to fall from grace? What does it mean to be estranged from Christ? In Hebrews 12, verses 14 to 16, we read, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God. Lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. So he says, pursue peace with all people. Unity and purity are the definition of the grace of God. Peace with all people. Bitterness, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, that is what the definition of falling from grace is. Bitterness, defilement, fornication like Esau. In 2 Peter 3, 17 and 18, we read it this morning already. You therefore, beloved, since you know this beforehand, beware lest you also fall from this, from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord, Je Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So false doctrine is is what makes us fall away from Christ, being led away with the error of the wicked. That's what that's what defines falling from steadfastness. Falling and grace are opposites. In verse, excuse me. In verse 14 of Second Peter, Peter defined that grace by describing how they were to be found in peace, without spot, and blameless. Sorry about that. In Romans 11, Paul uses the parable of the wild and the and the natural olive branches, which were cut cut off and grafted in. And this describes what falling from grace looks like. Jesus is the trunk. He was the end. He was the purpose. He was the goal of the law. But when the Jews rejected him, they were cut off. They fell from the tree because they didn't have the fruit of the Spirit. They weren't bearing fruit. Uh, if Christ is the purpose of the law, then those who are under the law in faith need to have the fruit of the law. But the Jews rejected Christ, and thus they were pruned from the tree because they didn't have that fruit and they fell from grace. The Jews were the people of God. They had a zeal for God. They desired the law of righteousness, but when they but then they became God's enemies. They were the household of God, but they rejected the chief cornerstone and they stumbled upon it and they were crushed by it and thus they fell from grace. So what's the answer to this problem of falling from grace? Romans 10, verses 2 through 4, For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Turn to Jesus. Jesus is the purpose of the law. He's the, the, the whole law was pointing to Jesus. The law was a gift of grace. Jesus is the source of righteousness. Jesus is grace. Now we do have a problem, though, if you can fall from grace, as the Jews did, and as Paul warns the Galatians about, is that the same thing as losing salvation? Can we lose our salvation? In, in Reformed theology, we have a doctrine called the assurance of salvation, which means that if you're saved, 
Once saved, always saved. If, if, if you believe, if you have the Holy Spirit, then, then you, you're promised an assurance of salvation. But if you can fall from grace, what does that mean? Is it the same as losing salvation? And I think the answer is twofold. It's both yes and no. So first let's look at how it is possible to lose salvation. First, we aren't Gnostics. Jesus is to be found somewhere. He's not floating out there in the ether. And he presents himself in a way and in a place. He had flesh and bones, and he came to Bethlehem. Which means he wasn't born in Rome, London, or Washington, D.C. He was in a specific place. If you wanted to go see Jesus, you had to go to Jerusalem or, or Bethlehem. In the Old Testament, salvation was of the Jews through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The promises, the covenants, and the prophecies. These were real things. They, they, had, a, they, they had a physical presence. They were, they were in Palestine. They were in Israel. And it's now, salvation is now to be found in the church. Salvation is located in the person and body of Jesus Christ. And that has a manifestation in the world. Jesus is objective. Salvation can be touched. So when we baptized Peter this morning, he got wet. In reality, in actuality, his, his hair was wet. He, he really joined the church in the flesh. And when we do the Lord's Supper in a little while, we'll eat bread and we'll drink wine. And when Jesus says, this wine is the new covenant in my blood, he's talking about fermented juice of real grapes. Because of this, fallen men can touch grace. Fallen men can have contact with the covenant. And that's why Paul tells us that not all Israel are of Israel. Not all Abraham's children are Abraham's children. Not every person who is baptized in the physical and objective church will be in heaven. And yet salvation is really found in the church. The gospel is proclaimed through the preaching of God's word, the preaching of ministers, the administration of sacraments, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. Grace is revealed. The truth of God's kindness, mercy, and salvation are to be found here in the church, in God's word. So if a man leaves the source of grace, if he rejects Christ, even though he is baptized or circumcised, he can balance ten spinning plates on sticks. And it doesn't matter what kind of acrobatics he thinks is going to save him, if he seeks salvation outside of Jesus Christ, by any other means than Jesus Christ, or any addition to Jesus Christ, he falls from grace. He, he, he falls from grace, and he loses his way on the path to salvation. He's lost his salvation if he's rejected the Lord's way. Even if he was bound to covenantally that body. On the other hand, you cannot lose your salvation. In 2 Peter 1, verse 10, we read, Be diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. What this implies is that we can be diligent to make our call and election sure. We can ensure our salvation. Peter commands us to do that. In 1 John 2, verses 19 and 20, John contrasts the Antichrist and the believers. And he says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. So here we have two. We have, we have false teachers, antichrists, going out from the apostles, having a connection to John. He says, but they were not of us. 
if they'd been of us, they would have continued with us. So if they were saved, they would not have turned from the way. If they'd had Christ, if they'd had the Holy Spirit, there's no way they could give that up for what they're trying to bind you with. So here we see that the Holy Spirit is a seal for the believer. He's a seal of the believer, and the true believers know salvation and would have remained faithful, and they will remain faithful. In our text this morning, in, in, uh, in verse 10, Paul also expresses his confidence in the Galatian believers. He's been arguing and convincing them and telling them how not to do that. Not, don't go follow the Judaizers. Don't, don't go get circumcised. Don't add to Christ. But he says, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. Paul's confident that they will be saved because he knows they had the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has been the assurance of salvation, and Paul's confidence and his whole argument so far have been based on the Holy Spirit's presence at the beginning. Galatians 3, verse 3. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being made perfect by the flesh? He's pointing to the Holy Spirit. He's pointing to Christ. He's saying, that was what grace, and that's how grace came to you. That's how salvation came to you. That's how you were able to do miracles and wonders and how you were able to live in peace and fellowship. Having the fruits of the Spirit. But one aspect of this is yet necessary. How do you know you're saved? Wherever the Spirit is, the fruit of the Spirit is. The presence of the Spirit is demonstrable. It's visible. It, it, again, we're not Gnostics. If you have the Spirit of God, if you have Christ, you will have love in your life. You will have a ministry in your life. It will be visible in how you act and how you behave. Starting next Sunday, we'll be studying uh, that in Galatians, Galatians 5, 16 to the end of the chapter, is the, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. That's, that's how we know when we're saved. It, it's contrasted with the fruits of the flesh. And really, all the rest of the book of Galatians, Paul's made his point now. He said, we're not saved by law. We're saved by grace. We're not saved by doing. We're saved by... We're saved by the Spirit, by the Holy Spirit, by Jesus Christ, by a free gift that sets us free. So the whole rest of his book now, he's going to be talking about what does that mean for us? What, what's the legs that he puts under that? How does that? How does the rubber hit the road? How does that hit the ground? But that's for the rest of the book. In verse 5 we read, For we, through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. The gospel has given us a tremendous promise. Righteousness by faith. The promise of the gospel is righteousness by faith. The fact that we can be made right with God and be freed from sin we can have reconciliation with God. We can be free from sin. We can love our neighbor as ourselves. Truly do that with a, with a heart that's willing and able. Enabled by the Holy Spirit. That is, that is the gospel promise. We are no longer under the, the tyranny and the burden of sin. We're no longer driven, being prone to sin in all that we do. The Spirit sets us free from that. Now we actually can, we actually have freedom of choice. Until Christ comes into our heart, until the Holy Spirit is given to us, and God renews us and gives us a heart of flesh, everything that we do is self-focused, self-motivated. It's worshiping our, our, ourselves. But when Christ comes and gives us a heart of flesh and teaches us that God is real and He loves us, and then He teaches us how to be like Him, so that we can have true salvation, that we can be, be freed from the condemnation of a just and holy and righteous God. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And the hope of this promise is so great that we can eagerly wait for it. 
It's based on the presence of the Spirit within us. The hope of the promise. For we eagerly, for we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. This is based on the presence of the Spirit within us. The Spirit is a down payment. He is an assurance. He's a guarantee of salvation for us. In Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, In Him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. In whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of His glory. We're sealed by the Holy Spirit, and He's a guarantee for us of, the, of our inheritance. We've been talking about an inheritance. We have been made sons and heirs of God. Our inheritance is eternal life, blessed life, true life, a life in community filled with people that we can love and share our lives with. And until the redemption of the purchased possession, we have a guarantee of it. In this world, we still battle sin. It's something that we have we, we fight until we die. Because we're not completely cleansed yet. But we have a guarantee that it's there. And our hope can be strong and real. And we can eagerly wait for that hope. In 2 Corinthians 1, 22, Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the Spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And in chapter 5, verse 5 of 2 Corinthians, Now he who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has also given us the Spirit as a guarantee. This hope of faith is in, the, is in contrast with the vain hope of works. Paul says we have a hope through faith, in the Spirit. Through the Spirit, we have a hope. And then he's contrasting this with the vain hope of works. For in Christ Jesus, verse 6, in Christ Jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. This is an explanation of verse 5. It's a definition of what it means to eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. How do you do that? How do you eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith? Not flesh, but faith. Circumcision doesn't matter. Cut, don't cut. Doesn't matter. Faith working through love. Effective faith. Working through love, faith, is what matters. Nothing done or not done in the flesh makes any difference in one's relationship with God. Doesn't matter what you do, it's not going to earn you any merit points with God. The external is immaterial and worthless unless it reflects a genuine internal righteousness. Faith working through love. Faith proves its character by works of love. The one who lives by faith is motivated by love for God. In Christ. So how do we apply this? First, let's go back to verse 1. Stand fast in liberty. Salvation's of faith. It's a relationship with God. It's a vital, vibrant connection between the branch and the vine. Between the tree and the limb. It's God working through you. We, if we want to be, be powerful in the Spirit, we need to be connected to God. We need to be connected to Christ. We need to have a relationship with Him. We have to be open with Him. We have to talk to Him, pray to Him, rest in Him, look to Him for our grace, for our salvation. Drink from the fountain so that you can become a spring overflowing with the Holy Spirit. We are to be conduits for God to work in the world. We are the body of Christ. We are His physical presence here in this world. And that means we need to do His work, which is a work of love. The opposite is dead religion. Going through the motions. Dead faith. 
Physically, it can look very much the same. You can have two people sitting in the same church in the same pew, and one of them is there because he's got to do it. He always did it, and this is how you earn your salvation. You show up to church on Sunday. And the other one is drinking from the fountain, hanging on every word of the Spirit that he's convicted by in the service, bringing his prayers and concerns to God, being filled so that he can go out into his week and fill others. We must not be dead in our religion. We must not be that way. We must be like Christ. We must love our neighbors as ourselves. In verses 7 through 12 of our text this morning, we have a comparison of the false teacher and Paul. In verses 7 through 8, we read, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. So you ran well. Paul bears witness that they heard the truth. And they obeyed it. When, when Paul brought the gospel to them, they heard the truth and they obeyed it. They lived just like they were supposed to. They suffered for Paul and with Paul. They had compassion on Paul. They would have plucked out their eyes and given it to him if that would have helped. He bears them witness that they knew the truth, that they knew the Spirit. But somebody got in the way. Somebody hindered the way of obedience. And in verse 8 he says, that's not from Jesus. Whoever got in the way there, the message that they were bringing, that was not the gospel. That was not love. That was not from Jesus. And it's not from me. That's what Paul's saying here. Paul said, I, I, I have the gospel. Christ gave it to me. Remember we, we studied in the beginning of Galatians. Christ revealed himself to me and I communicated that to you. That was the gospel. You ran well. You had that. But this here, this Judaism, this works-based salvation, this turning to the law for a greater grace, that's not from Jesus. Verse 9, a little leaven leavens the whole lump. This is pointing to the fact that false teaching, this legalism that the Judaizers are, are planting in the church, is infectious. It, it's systemic in nature. So if you bind them by saying, well, you need to be circumcised and then you'll be okay. You can't just draw the line there. It doesn't work that way. As soon as you can do one, one thing that's going to help you be a better Christian, help you be a better person, and merit you, earn you a right to God's grace, one thing, if you, if you can do one thing, then where do you stop? A little here? Well, if I could do circumcision, maybe I can uh, tithe on my mitt now. That'll, that'll help, help, right? It's never enough. And it gets to the point of the Pharisees where they're tithing on mint and they're coming, on their spices. They're tithing on that. But they miss the weightier matters of the law. They oppress the widow and the orphan. And they bind the consciences of the masses of people. It's exactly what the Judaizers were trying to get the Galatians to do. Observe these days. Observe these feasts. Be circumcised. Then you'll know what it's like to be saved. Because the Jews certainly understood that, right? Wrong. Jesus came to the Jews, and they rejected him. He was their Messiah, and they rejected him. They murdered their Messiah. And they were condemned to a destruction because of that. That generation saw the destruction of the temple. That generation saw the destruction of Israel. The, the Lord moved in the Romans to destroy Israel because they were so far gone. Yet a remnant was saved. Jesus was a Jew. The apostles were all Jews. And they brought a gospel to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. When it was rejected by the Jews, the gospel is no longer bound by the national lines that it was formerly bound by. Now, freedom 
a right relationship with God, freedom from the condemnation of sin, was available to all men. True liberty. Stand fast in the liberty. In verse 10 we read, I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will have no other mind. But he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is. Hear the, the comparison of Paul and the false teacher again. Paul has confidence in them. Paul desires their reconciliation with him. He says, I have confidence in you that you will have no other mind than, my, than what's, what's going on right here. He said, you will agree with me. I've, I, I, I'm building you up. The false teachers, on the other hand, are trying to undermine their confidence. Trying to cause them to stumble and fall. Trying, they're, they're jealous of the freedom that they have in Christ. And they're, they're trying to bind their consciences. They're trying to get, they, remember last week you talked about, they zealously court you so that you will court them. They're trying to undermine your confidence so that you will kowtow to what they want you to do. They want a, a worldly power. And Paul says, that's, world, worldliness is nothing. It, it's nothing. Circumcision, circum, uncircumcision, it's nothing. It's all Christ. God has revealed himself directly. He's no longer mediated by circumcision. The Spirit is dwelling in your hearts. So Paul has confidence in the Galatians, but the false teachers are trying to undermine their confidence. Paul will be vindicated in their acceptance, in their agreement, and in their salvation. When they have no other mind, when they are saved, then Paul is vindicated for his argument here. Because, because he said just last week, I don't mind suffering. I don't mind laboring in birth again for you. Even though I already did that. I, I delivered the gospel to you. You were my spiritual children. And if I need to do, go through that again, it's not a, not a problem. I will suffer for you. So, if in their agreement with Paul, Paul is vindicated by their salvation. And, it, and it's a glorious thing. Because they are lifted up and Paul is lifted up. But... Paul will be vindicated in their agreement with him, but the enemy will bear his judgment, whoever he is. Whoever he is. This goes back to what Paul was saying early on in Galatians also, where he said, it doesn't matter who you are, if you're an angel from God, if it's, if it's me or anybody else, if I'm preaching a different gospel than what I preached to you at the first, reject it. doesn't matter who you are. The, the, the Judaizers, they were saying, well, we're from James and Jerusalem. We're from the, the real apostles. And then they were lying and saying, well, Paul actually teaches circumcision. But no, they were lying. He, he does not. And James and the real apostles vindicated Paul in his gospel to the Gentiles. So the enemy will bear his judgment, whomever he is. And this brings to mind our Lord's admonition. Whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better for him if a millstone were cast around his neck and he were cast into the sea. The enemy will bear his judgment, whoever he is. These Jews are not dealing with a weak God. They're dealing with the God who raised Jesus from the dead and established him and gave him an authority over all things in heaven and earth. And he has a heart for the lost. He has a heart for the oppressed. He has a heart for the widow and for the orphan. The enemy will bear his judgment, whomever he is. Verse 11 we read, And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has ceased. Paul's persecution vindicates his claims. He's saying, they're treating me the way they treated Jesus. Paul uses the fact of his sufferings as an indicator that he is faithful. In John 15, verse 20, Jesus told us that if they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul is saying, I am persecuted. If I still preached circumcision, they wouldn't be persecuting me. The world doesn't have a problem with that kind of salvation. Rome didn't have a problem with the Jews 
existing in the midst of all their pantheon of gods, even though they didn't worship the rest of the gods. Rome didn't have a problem with the Jews doing what they were doing. It was still works-based salvation. And it didn't affect the Gentiles. You do your thing, that's fine. But the offense of the cross is the invalidity of circumcision. The reason the Jews were offended by the cross is that now Christian Jews were able to eat with Gentiles in peace and harmony. There was a unity of brethren there. They could have a meal together. The divisions of the Old Testament have been wiped away in the cross. Sin has been atoned for. The world does not have problems with works-based salvation. Every method of salvation outside of Christ is a works-based salvation. What the world doesn't get is a free grace that is so great. It's not just that it's free, it's that it's so great. Christ crucified and resurrected. Foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. They reject it, but the effects of it are undeniable. They've rejected Christ, but you can't look at what he's doing in the world and say, that's not real. He's changing people. He's making a community out of sinners. He's creating a community of peace and joy and harmony and love. A community of people that worship God in spirit and truth. So, while they reject Christ, they can't handle him being out there on his own either because they're jealous of him. So what do they do? They murder him. They're not good with not having Christ. Well, they're fine with that. They're not good with him being out there unpersecuted. And so, if we are going to be Christ to the world, we will be persecuted by the world. But Paul loves his children in the, in, the, in the spirit, and so he has an exclamation in verse 12. I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. Paul's love makes him defensive of his children in the Lord. They want, they want to, to cut the Gentiles. They want to separate them from the rest of the Gentiles by forcing circumcision on them. Paul says they can take themselves out. They, they want to cut, let them, let them cut themselves off. And so what he's saying basically is anathema on them. Christ is cut off from them. Salvation is not for them. They've fallen from grace. In verse 13 we read, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Only do not use liberty as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. You're free. You've been called to liberty. Christ has called you to himself. He said, come to me. Be free from sin. Receive the free gift of salvation. Atonement. Peace with God. Be free from sin. But don't use that freedom as a purpose for sin. Freedom does give us opportunities to sin that we don't have if we're not free. But freedom from sin forbids that. We, we are to reject sin and embrace freedom. And how does that, what does that look like? It looks like serving one another in love. Through love, serve one another. Why? Because all the law is fulfilled in one word, even in this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware, lest you be consumed by one another. Verses 14 and 15. The commandment is, the command, love your neighbor as yourself, is the fulfillment of the law. The very thing which the Judaizers are accusing the Gentiles of failing at, the Gentile Christians. They're saying, you're not fulfilling the law. The law says we need to be circumcised. And Paul's saying, no, 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 you are fulfilling the law because you love one another. You serve one another self-sacrificially. So who are we supposed to love? 
Well, the parable of the Good Samaritan answers the question of who is our neighbor. Our neighbor is the one you can know. You can see him. He's right there. He's the one you can reach, and he's the one who you can help, one you can touch, the person who's there. The gospel starts at home. It starts in our hearts, and it goes out from there. The good news, God makes us right with him so that he can work through us and make the world right with him, to bring others to him. That's our job. And, 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 and how do you bring others to him? You love them. You love your neighbor. You, you do like the Good Samaritan said. You bind up his wounds. You pr- provide shelter from him. You pay his debts. Like Jesus did for you. He loved us while we were yet sinners. While we were yet enemies of God, Jesus loved us. He says, the world gets love. They, they can love somebody who loves them. A good man might even die for those whom he, whom he loves, his friends. But the world doesn't get loving your enemies. And that's what Jesus does for us. And in loving us, he makes us his sons. And he gives us freedom. And he gives us power. And he gives us dominion. It's not just that he makes us not slaves and now we're serfs because we're poor. No, he, he gives us power and wealth. He gives us the ability to give. He gives us wells within our hearts of the Holy Spirit so we can, that love can pour out of us. And the more we do it, the more capacity we have to do it. So the gospel starts at home. It started with Jesus and the apostles. But from there, it quickly spreads to thousands when God sends the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So it goes through all, throughout Jerusalem. The gospels are spreading the gospel, and the, the apostles are spreading the gospel. In Jerusalem, it spreads like wildfire to the Gentiles after the Jews reject it. And this is leaven working both ways: the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of false doctrine. Anathema on that. We have to cut it out. We have to get rid of it because it will con- corrupt the body. It will corrupt the church. But the, the leaven of the gospel, the kingdom of God is like leaven, which a woman hid in three measures of meal, and all of it became leavened. That's God is working in the world, and He's working in you and me. And and He's fighting the leaven of the Pharisees. He's eliminating the leaven of the Pharisees. He's overcoming evil with good. Love overcomes evil. So Christ feeds us and he fills us. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, for they shall be filled. So instead of devouring one another, but if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Instead of devouring one another, we are to be like Christ to our neighbors, feeding them, filling up their loving cup. Your kids need your love. Without your love, they feel abandoned. Your wife, your, your husband, your spouse needs your love. It starts at home. Your brothers and your sisters in the church need you. They need your love. And that means they need you. They need you. They need your compassion and your concern, your desire for them. Your self-sacrificial love. That's what your community needs. Jesus is calling us to give up ourselves for his loving service. It would be entirely appropriate for us to think of ourselves as a love army. A love army. Love is our primary command and responsibility and duty. God is love, so we must be. So we must love. And how? How are we supposed to love? Love your neighbor as yourself. First, that means you need to love yourself. And the greatest way you can love yourself is by being saved. 
accept God's gracious gift to you of salvation. If your pride is in the way of that, give it up. Love yourself by accepting the free gift of salvation. God will give you a new heart and send you His Spirit if you give up your pride and the ways that don't earn salvation. God works from the inside out. He will change your heart. And when you cleanse the inside of the cup, that's more important than the outside because that's the part where what you're drinking is touching. So cleanse the inside of the cup first. Change your heart. Love yourself by loving Jesus. Give it up to Him. Take the splinter out of your own eye first, and then you're able to love your neighbor as yourself. How else does this love? What, what? How else does loving your neighbor as yourself? How is that communicated? Love compassionately and patiently. Put yourself in your neighbor's shoes. If you have greater revelation, if you have greater wisdom, greater understanding, if you understand the Bible better, humble yourself to communicate with them. Be compassionate. Recognize they just don't have that light yet. And die to yourself. Give up the big theological words. Give it up. Just communicate the love of Christ to them how they need it. Because they are worth it. At least as much as you were. The other way that we love is unconsciously. We love ourselves unconsciously. We don't think about it. It's, it's easy. Somebody starts poking us. Or, hey, stop that. That's unconscious. Because we love ourselves. We don't want to be hurt. Now we don't have trouble remembering how to love ourselves. And this is, but loving our neighbor unconsciously is something that's only possible by, by, by God's grace and by His Spirit. Faithful practice and regular obedience result in a character of love. Faithfully living by the commands that God's given us, faithfully doing what He tells us to do, results in a character of love, which is the only possible, which is only possible in liberty from sin. But liberty from sin is ours by grace through faith. So stand fast, therefore, in the liberty you have, and obey the commands to the best of your ability, and God will create a character of love in you in which you'll be able to love your neighbor unconsciously. Finally, the other way that we're supposed to love our neighbor as we love ourselves is physically. Our self-love is very tangible. We put food in our mouths, we put clothes on our backs, and we surround ourselves with comfort. Our love of our neighbors should be tangible also. Remember, we're not Gnostics. Saying a prayer for somebody is great, but delivering a meal in the process is better. Jesus tells the sheep that when they clothed, fed, or sheltered one of the least of these, his brethren, they did it unto him. And likewise the goats, that they abandoned him in a similar manner. And you refuse to feed, clothe, and shelter those who are needing those things. And finally, beware of the opposite of love. Verse 15. If you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Liberty has an impact on community. Liberty, the kind of liberty we're talking about. The absence of sin, freedom from sin, will affect our community. Biting and devouring each other is, not, is what we see in the world. If, in, in the world, you look at the candidates running for president. If something bad happens to the other guy, that means more votes for me. That's biting and devouring one another. When you're seeking that. The world's philosophy is kill or be killed. Blessed is the one with the biggest stick. But Paul warns us of the end result of that kind of thinking. In the end, all parties are consumed. And even the winner is a loser. As the greatest asset he could have had, a friend, an ally, is instead an enemy or dead. True freedom results in peaceful community, sweet fellowship, mutual lifting up of each other, self-sacrifice, and lack of pride 
greed, and bitterness. True liberty demands love. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, let's pray. Freedom and love are two of the most powerful words we can know and use. Men live and die for these two words. Even fallen men understand this. As Christians, our commitment to these two virtues should be even stronger. Their foundation is in our God. Because our God is a God who grants us freedom. And He is love. Freedom from the tyranny of sin is entirely outside the experience of the unbeliever. Instead, sin clouds his judgment and drives him on to the cliff of destruction that waits for every man who dies outside of Christ. But we are not condemned to walk that road. Jesus has set us free from sin, and he has shown us what love is, so that we can know God and pursue him in faith and gratitude and joy. So let us remember Christ and what he suffered for our sins, how he paid the ultimate price for our benefit and our freedom, and how we owe our very lives to his grace and mercy. As we go out this week, let us purpose to live for his sake, giving up ourselves in self-sacrificial love for our neighbors as he did for us. This table is for all who are baptized and under the authority of Christ and his body, the church. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.